the wind is coming over the deck at about 35 miles an hour. I would be able to smell the salt spray, but it's overpowered by the jet fuel washing over my face. The seas are running about 8 to 10 feet in this part of the Pacific. It would feel like a lot in a small boat, but I'm on the deck of a U.S. aircraft carrier. I run across the landing area, look to my left, and I'm seeing the next jet rolling in on short final. And I know I've only got a couple seconds to clear the landing area, or I'm going to be the one who causes a foul deck. As I get to the other side of the landing area, the only place to go is right to the nose of three F-18s that are being unchalked and unchained to be queued up for the next launch sequence. And I realize I've got nowhere to go forward, nowhere to go back without being in the way. <laughs> what fiction did I just listen to? Is that a reading from a Tom Clancy novel or what? Uh, I'm writing a book, Life on the Flight Deck, and that's a true story. This really happened to me, and I'm super excited to talk about this today. A lot of people have asked about my experience on a flight deck and being able to go out on an aircraft carrier and how it happened and what the details were and everything. And so uh, it's time to do a podcast. And so today, welcome to this next episode of CubeCast. This is the Chester Nimitz episode. <laughs> nice wordplay. <laughs> I'm Chester and today Weldon is joining me, but Charles is out on assignment. So we'll get to hear from him in a future episode. You told me years ago about your idea for this project. How long have carriers been something that sparked your imagination? And how are you making your dream come to life? The dream has been a long time. As far back as I can remember, I have been deeply fascinated, intensely curious about flight deck operations. As a kid, I remember going to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and just every time we'd go, I'd beg my parents to watch this IMAX film called Flyers, which was a fantastic film about a Corsair crash landing on the deck of a carrier, and then that pilot's grandson coming back later and restoring the plane and, and doing that same shot and you know filming that, and I just loved that aspect. And then I remember when the Navy Memorial came to Washington, D.C. and first opened up and went there as a kid. And to see the film that they had there, about a six-month cruise on a carrier followed the guy's life as he took this cruise and just fascinated by all the intricacies of what it took to make that deck function. So it's been a deep, deep fascination for a long time. But about 10 years ago is when I made the decision that I'm the best way to encapsulate this and the best way to kind of share this deep passion is to write a, a coffee table book about life on the flight deck and, and what that's like, mainly from the perspective of the men and women who work that deck. You know, there's been a lot filmed and written about the jets and, and the pilots, and, and that's awesome. I mean, that's that's you, why the whole ship is maybe, there. Are you saying just maybe a movie would have come out just this year talking about carriers and naval jets, etc.? There was a film released this year, I think. I may have heard about it. Maverick, I think, is part of the title, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the whole entire so, ship is there to launch and recover those planes. You know, that's 6,000 people to do that, but... The story that's untold is the 18, 19, 20-year-olds that are working the deck in all kinds of conditions weather-wise and, and what they have to do in incredible responsibility and danger that they do to launch and recover these planes. So knowing you like I did, I know we were in Oshkosh, Wisconsin at the EAA air show last year, and you're talking to a husband and yeah. wife. He was an F-14 pilot. She would yep. flew, is it C-2s? C-2s, the, yep, the COD. The, the cargo, yep. yep, yep. And they were helping your kids get signed up. And I'm knowing what's in your mind because we've been <laughs> friends long enough. So like, and I thought, this guy needs to know what you're working on because I have to imagine, much like a surgeon really appreciates the nurses and the staff behind the scenes, the fighter pilots have to appreciate these people have their lives in their hands. He would probably think this is cool that you're working on this project. So I'm like, hey, Chester, tell Steve about your project. And honestly, you have way more faith in that than I did at the time. And so that's really the first lesson for me is have faith in it. Because I thought, well, hey, here's an F-14 pilot. He probably doesn't really care 
about my perspective, my angle on this, but you were absolutely right, and he absolutely did care. I think the words he used is unsung heroes in terms of talking about these people that work the deck. I think my favorite part was when he looked with you almost like looking at someone who is in your house that doesn't belong. How do you know about this? <laughs> right. But from my perspective, I'm like, doesn't everybody know about how flight deck functions? Doesn't everybody know what the colors of the shirts mean? Doesn't everybody know that they're trying to target the three wire when they land? Doesn't everybody know this? <laughs> so if anybody has watched Maverick, did you even notice that there were colored shirts on the, on the flight deck? And did you wonder was that just because they felt like wearing blue that day or uh. there was, there's, is there an actual story to it? And Chester has taught so, me, yes, there's a story. To there's it. an actual story to it. And that, that's my biggest, I've really enjoyed Maverick. My biggest hang up was I wanted more video of the flight deck. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I wanted to see more of in the movie. It was fantastic. Really had a great time. So, all right. The, the unsung heroes, Steve is aware that you're working on a project. So what happened next? He told me, he said, I may know some people that could help you out and get you some information basically is he didn't make any promises but a couple of weeks later i got a text from steve and a call and then an email thread and i'm trying to read backwards through this email thread because it has a bunch of dod department of defense email addresses on it and a lot of titles that I'm trying to source out like what what is happening in my inbox. These people are having a conversation in my inbox about me. <laughs> Admiral, general. Yes. yes, commander this. And turns out that Steve took my story and talked to a friend of his who knew someone who said, hey, I, I know just the person you to talk to and I'm going to call him right now. And he picks up the phone and he dials his friend and says, hey, I've got this friend. He's trying to help an author. Well, he was talking to the commander of Naval Aviation Pacific Fleet. So, I mean... <laughs> that, that guy is responsible for more lethal fighter aircraft than yeah. a lot of countries. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and that guy goes, yeah, I know exactly who you need to talk to. You need to talk to this commander who is commander of flight deck operations for the Pacific fleet. And the people, we're going to stop a little bit pretty close to there. Obviously it was being in the right place at the right time, knowing people, telling your story, being prepared for that story, but we're not going to give the ins and outs of how exactly Chester got on the carrier. <laughs> Cause we're going to use an author's plot device that is called very lazy. One thing led to another. One thing led to another. Absolutely. Yeah. But I will say, here's a lesson learned. And that is, it's the preparation to become the overnight success. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just some random thing. It was long-term prep for overnight success. And so I had built a website around this project called lifeontheflightdeck.com and done a lot of research and I've been engrossed in this. It feels like overnight success, but really it's long-term prep. And so that long-term prep pays off. I will say this from the, from the sales, non, not sales, but just business aspect of what someone can take away from this, learn your targets language, Absolutely. learn their acronyms, learn the things yeah. that are important to them. That's one thing we've learned. Chester and I have made a career of getting in places we don't belong. And so far he's on the <laughs> leaderboard. I think I have to go to space next, which means I've got to learn a whole nother lingo that I don't currently know. Fair enough. I've watched a lot of stuff, but <laughs> That really makes a big difference because it gives you instant credibility. This is um, true. I knew that the Navy wasn't that interested in telling the Navy's story, but the Navy is very interested in telling the story of the sailors. And so subtle difference maybe on the surface, but huge difference in how I had to pitch the project and, and what the result is. So. Yeah. So right. really long-term prep for overnight success. Or, there's, there's kind of three things. There's That's one of them. The power of the ask is another, and I'll, I'll, when we get to it, I'll tell you a follow-up story on that. And then unexpected leadership principles that I ran into on the ship. So I think that was one of my favorites. I'm looking forward to that part of the story. The, the power of the ask actually fits in right here. So the power of the ask is a critical thing, and we don't do it. Maybe we do it without thinking about it, but here's the thing. I, I was talking with this commander, long story short, I was talking with this commander of flight deck operations and told him about my project and told him what my passion was. And, and he was, you know, essentially nodding along. And I got to the point where the ask was, I want to get on 
a carrier, active carrier, and interview people and take pictures to do this project. And I remember distinctly that there was this moment. Yeah, like you, you, you wanted to get on an active carrier at sea, not in port. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Active carrier at sea. I've been on several museum carriers and that's great. I've been on yeah a carrier in port, but there was this distinct moment. I remember in talking with him that this, the voices inside my head were saying, this is the time. Now's the time you ask. Now's the time you ask. And there's other voices going, don't ask, don't say it, don't ask, don't say it. And I had to overcome that for the power of the ask to say, sir, this is really what my ultimate ask is to be able to go on the ship. And so, yeah, I made the ask, you know, overcame that barrier, made the ask and things unfolded from there. That's fantastic. You're going on your way to the carrier. I know at one point we talked about me going along with you, but really there was a better option to have someone else with you. And if you're going to make a coffee table book, you need stunning photography. So you were able to take... Kenton Van Dyne. Kenton Van Dyne came along. God God brought Kenton Van Dyne into my life right at the right time. Here's a guy who <laughs> that's that you don't need to tell me call me that, Chester. Friends. You don't gotta call <laughs> well, me I God. Mean, I mean, okay, come... so he used you. Yeah. <laughs> you connected us. And uh, here's a guy who loves airplanes, who loves adventure, can live in small spaces. And he and I can get along and and live in a small space together for a while, kind of austere conditions, if you will. And so it just clicked. He had the flexibility to go. And so it was myself and Kenton as a photographer. And what an adventure. We had to fly to San Diego to board the ship in San Diego. And I remember talking with the commander and he's like, well, one of the negatives is we would be sailing out of San Diego. So I don't know if you can get there from the East Coast. And I'm like, well, sir, I'm... I believe we could make that happen. You know, <laughs> I'm ready to fly to Guam. I didn't say that. But <laughs> oh, goodness. You're taking somebody on to a carrier, and he, this was something you've been training for, for for like a, you know years and years and years. Yeah. He gets yeah. a call. Hey, this might be something that happens in the next few months. Yeah. Then it's, it's live. Is he just awestruck that y'all are actually doing this? <laughs> Even more so than me. Like, I, I mean, I can't believe we're going out there and we're and we're, we're on the base and we're just like, is this really happening? We go up to the ship. Is this really happening? And we were both awestruck. He, I was doing my best to bring him along. He did a fantastic job. I was doing my best, in other words, to get him up to speed as quickly as possible. And he's asking me about acronyms and people and structure and what to expect. And I mean, I'm sort of making up some of the expectations. I don't know what it's going to be like. <laughs> and meanwhile, you need him to take pictures. So he started doing that. How many pictures do you think he took? Uh, we we did some in the week that we were on. We got to be on for a week and we took somewhere around 9,000 images and videos. And yeah, it was constant. <laughs> it was it was amazing. That's I couldn't awesome. couldn't have done that without him. I'm, I'm there interviewing people, talking to people, trying to be casual about that, which people were amazing at sharing their story and being open and, and just talking about their experiences. And, and it was fantastic. And meanwhile, he's capturing images, videos, all that stuff. It, it really worked out well. All right. So I'm going to, I'm looking at some pictures as we, as we tell this, that you've shared with me and I want to help people get a visualization of what we're looking at on a carrier. Everyone's seen a picture of an aircraft carrier, but they don't always know the things that you know. Yeah. Give me the length and width roughly of a carrier, and I've got a follow-on question. <laughs> so, well, let's put it this way. The flight deck of this carrier is four and a half acres, which is significantly larger than a lot of people's home address, you know? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, mine's 430 square feet, so yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so four and a half acres, roughly a thousand feet long, something like that. 250 feet wide or so it varies because the angle deck it's it's massive it's just huge they yeah it's huge all right how many aircraft are on a loaded carrier on a regular when a, basis yeah when a wing is fully deployed it's around 70 aircraft of which they put about 50 in i mean i'm sorry 20 in the hangar deck 50 on the deck and and that's part of the story here is the like the the chaotic dance of moving the jets around, of landing jets on the deck while there's other jets stacked up around, of launching jets, of moving jets around because they're going to move this plane over here so they can launch this plane. And that's part of the chaos and, and the story of what makes this challenging. 
So I'm looking at a picture of a board that a guy's moving little models around on. Mm-hmm. Walk, mm-hmm. walk us through that. So this is the Ouija board, they call it. And it's a scale model of the flight deck. And underneath they have the hangar deck and they plan the moves. So they've got all the, the planes as little wooden cutouts on there and they plan the moves. They're going to take this one. They're going to park it here. They're going to launch this one here. They're going to move these here in this daisy chain order. They're going to go out. And this is all controlled by the person they call handler who's in control of the flight deck. And so all the moves specified by him, the team there, and there's different representatives from the different groups, you know, the blue shirts who are in charge of chalking and chaining the planes, as well as operating the elevators. There's the purples who are in charge of fueling the yellow shirts or the plane directors. And so they're all there kind of huddled up. We got to be in several briefings where they're planning their moves, you know, and, and the interesting thing about that is you go in there, they plan their moves. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to, you know, do it in this order. And then by the time they hit the door, something's already changed and they have to adapt to the, to the changes in the plan. So <laughs> this sounds like my life now. <laughs> a friend of mine has a great phrase that they use. Adventure begins when the plan ends. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's really what it is. It's like, it's all about them dealing with plan B and C and D and E as, as things unfold. Perfect. So keep going. Tell, tell some more story as you, as you work through these. Before any flight operations start, there's what they call a FOD walk down for an object debris. And you might have 500 to 1,000 sailors come up on deck and, you know, shoulder to shoulder, you're shuffling along the deck looking for just the smallest piece of trash or metal or anything you find on the deck that could be picked up, sucked into an intake, blown at somebody, anything like that. It's incredibly critical that the deck is clean. And so they do these FOD walk downs. Funny thing is Handler loves to tell her, you know, he'll come up on the, basically the ship wide PA and say, you know, it's another beautiful day in the Navy. The, the sun is shining. It's warm and, you know, sunny. Come on up and do a FOD walk down. And it may not be sunny at all, but by the time you get up there, you're committed. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, imagine you probably don't know what the weather is and you're in the middle you of the middle beast. I mean, so many people never see the light of day for for weeks. You know, it's just their job is working below the decks. So that's pretty incredible. So you're looking at jets, you're looking at cargo planes, I'm assuming helicopters also? They bring helicopters on. When we were on, they brought helicopters on first and, and helicopters serve an important role. There's always a helicopter up in the air, just off the ship, standing by during flight ops in case there's an incident and then they're ready for rescue. They also use them obviously for um, carrying some cargo on and off the ship for medevac, things like that. So helicopters are an important part of it. They're kind of their own little world, like the helicopter crews and, and you know, is, is kind of their own little world. But what's crazy is we saw them landing helicopters at the same time as they're landing F-18s. And I mean, pretty close together. It's just, it's just mind boggling how close together things are happening on the deck. Yeah, that blows my mind. And the speed at which everything's occurring and the, the noise. I imagine it's not, not quiet on the deck. So first of all, when they go into flight ops, all the equipment on the deck is running. They start all the, the cranes, the tugs, the, the fire trucks, the, all that stuff is running. When the, when the planes are on, when, during flight ops, and especially the cycles that we were running where they were, they were basically certifying the flight deck for operations. Plus they were qualifying the pilots, you know, the, as a pilot, you have to have a certain amount of carrier landings and takeoffs in a certain amount of time to stay current. So nothing shut off. They were bringing the jets in, they land them, they taxi them, they put them over here, they move them around. Um, they're bringing more in, they're launching them off and everything's running all the time. It's, it's chaos. You're using you're wearing double hearing protection, so earplugs in, and then you're wearing this cranial, which is kind of a mix of a soft soft shell helmet thing with some hard pieces on it and, and earmuffs. And so you're, you're double hearing protection, but then over top of all that, Handler has a microphone he can pick up and make announcements on the deck that you can hear through that, which is just, it's incredibly loud. <laughs> So how do you how do you hear each other over that? 
So that's one of the interesting things is there's a few people on deck that have radios and they're in radio communication, but the majority of them don't. And we saw a lot of communication happening in a way that looking back like this, we think this kind of happens in a way that builds teamwork without necessarily planning on it. So if I want to talk to you while we're on the deck, I basically have to come up and give you a like a half hug. I'm sticking my, you know, my face up right by your head. I'm I'm talking as loudly as I can and you you can hear me at that point, but it's a very like I'm in your space. It's intimate may not be quite the right word, but it's it's pretty close. And so there's a lot of that communication going on and 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 really it lends itself towards looking out for each other. It lends itself towards giving each other a helping hand really, and, and functioning as a team across the, the different departments that are working on the deck. We found out that on the back of the float coat, a float coat is something you wear that's, it's not a life preserver, but it's an auto-inflate life preserver with a, with a beacon and things like that. And on the back of it is a handle cutout, basically. And that serves two purposes. When you're a trainee, you have to observe flight deck operations from up on the island, up on the side of the island where they call Vultures Row. (laughs) And you have to observe for three days and three night ops before they'll let you go out on the deck. Then when you do go out on the deck, it's a one-to-one ratio with the trainer. And you're basically, you're you're grabbing your trainer's float coat on the back. The middle of the back has this handle cut out. You're grabbing that and they're leading you around. And that's how you learn where to go, where not to go, and, and how to do your job. But the second purpose that handle fulfills is so that you can reach out and grab it and pull somebody back and literally save their life. And and that's not abnormal at all to happen. So did you have to have your hand on somebody's back? <laughs> so I never got to save anybody's life, but this was one of the challenges of working with Kenton on the deck. You know, he's shooting through a camera and now in flight ops, they're steaming into the wind and they're putting about 35 miles an hour of wind over the deck. So that kind of doesn't sound like a lot if you're sitting in your office somewhere listening to this, but the next time it's 30 mile an hour winds or 35 mile an hour winds, go outside and do some work because you have to brace against it. It wears you down. It's tough. And so a lot of times I spent bracing trying to provide him a more stable platform to shoot from. I guess where I was trying to go with that is it sounds like these kids who come on deck are, you know, 19, 20 year olds and they have to set up on the, in the vultures row and then they have to hold somebody's back to move around the deck. Yeah. It sounds like it'd be hard to do your job with that restriction. Did you have to do it that way or did you get (laughs) a little bit more freedom? Well, so yeah, on the flight deck during flight ops, we had to be escorted around basically in somebody's charge but we didn't have to um we didn't have to grab on and and be led around like that like we were attached to them so we did get some more degrees of freedom and as long as we were out there with somebody who knew what we were doing and where we could and couldn't go as far as during the operations that was fantastic but in the ship in general we had unprecedented access to go wherever we wanted to go and talk to whomever we wanted to talk to. There was lots of times when the commander who we were on with was like, oh, have you seen this? Or have you been to this room? Have you been down to the the landing gear recovery room, like the engine room for the wires, basically? And we're like, no, not yet. Okay, come on, come on, come on. You know, and 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 he we take off down, down a passageway, down some ladders and, you know, bam, 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 knock on a door and whoosh, in we go and, and talk with people. It was, it, was, it was incredible. We really expected to have to call for an escort every time we wanted to go somewhere and that simply wasn't the case. Yeah, I imagine that would have been a lot harder to do and oh, see the man. interesting things. Yeah. So I'm looking at pictures. How true to life are the stereotypes of, you know, the of the pilots? Yeah. So... The stereotypical pilot swagger is is real. That's what I got to say. The places that we interacted with the pilots the most was in the officer's mess. And we, <laughs> down to the mustache. I'm just saying, if you watch Top Gun or Maverick, the, the stereotypes are true. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So what when, when you're not flying... Uh, do they just sit around and do nothing or do they have a job to do also? 
as a pilot, you can do an additional job duty or an additional role of being an LSO, a landing signal officer. And so you have to be a pilot in order to do that. But basically, you're if you've seen Maverick, if you've seen Top Gun, these are the guys in white. They're standing on the 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 rear deck and they're talking the pilots in. So they're just visually looking at the approach and they know this picture, this sight picture so well that they're telling him, you know, you're you're low, you're low, add power, add power, you're high, come left, come right. And they're literally talking him in, which is an astounding job because the plane is moving, the ship is pitching and rolling, and they're basically gauging where where these two moving things are going to be when they collide and and that's really what it is i mean a landing on an aircraft carrier is essentially a controlled crash you're <laughs> you're bringing the jet in and as soon as you hit as soon as your hook hits the deck you go into full military power so that if you if you miss that wire with your hook there's four wires if you miss all of them you don't have enough time to spool up the jet and so you hit full throttle, and if you miss the wires, you can go up and go around again. If you catch the wires and they stop you, you're at full throttle. And so now the wire's holding you back, you're at full throttle. It's an intense experience to stand right on the side of that landing area and feel that. That doesn't sound like a small cable then. These cables are about two inches in diameter, and, and they're held up off the deck with a little stanchion to make it easier for the hook to, to catch. And then each cable is rated for a certain amount of hooks, a certain amount of you know traps, they call it, and then they have to just replace them. It's interesting to see if a, if a jet comes in, and so they're targeting the third wire in, but maybe the hook just tips the top of the second wire. Well, guys have to run out, and they'll hold their arms up in, a, in an X to foul the landing area while another guy inspects the cable to make sure that it's still safe to use. That's crazy. I have to imagine that's pretty violent. You don't want to be standing on the wrong side of that cable when it lands. <laughs> uh, we got to be in the cable engine room where the spools of cable go below decks. And it's basically, think of like a big block and tackle system that's controlled by an oil-filled cylinder. And they set the weight they set the, the restriction on those cables based on the weight of every plane that's landing. So it's changing every time. And then the plane hits and that block and tackle system moves about 20 feet almost instantly. And it's, it's incredibly violent. It's like, it's like being in a car accident right there, standing right beside this thing. I mean, you could put your hands on it. It would, it would, <laughs> it would take your arm off. It's, the violence is something else. When you say that and there's no guards around it, I have to imagine that has happened. You know what I mean? It's yeah, I mean, right, you you got to be vigilant. You got to be paying attention. What can move and, and what can't because they've got an incredible amount of stuff packed in there. The catapult is the same way. Our berth, our room was directly under catapult two. And most of the time when they're firing catapults, we're on deck because of flight ops. But after flight ops is when they would work on and do maintenance on the catapults and then they have to fire them several times and you know to make sure everything's working so that usually happened between midnight and 2 a.m something like that and the first time that happened i was asleep yeah it felt like a large truck <laughs> ran into a building i mean i just about came out of came out of my bunk it was so surprising <laughs> So how okay that's that's something just from the 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 day to day stuff. What was it like being on a on a non luxury cruise cabin inside of a of an aircraft carrier? What was what was your berth like? From our perspective, probably pretty austere. We had a room that was set up for four officers and metal bunk beds, two metal bunk beds, some metal drawer storage units and things like that. But this was this was officer's country, literally. That's what it's called, officer's country. And a lot better and more luxurious, if you will, than being in the enlisted quarters, which is, I don't know, three or four bunks high and a lot less space, privacy, things like that. So, <laughs> so, so that, that begs the question, were you guys treated as officers or... Just it's interesting. Random. 
Yeah, so obviously we were out of place in terms of <laughs> it was clear that we were civilians on the ship. Nobody, nobody had to ask. Um, in a way, we were deferred to. So uh, you know, nobody salutes a civilian, but we were deferred to from from everyone ranking. You know, and, and so that was really a pretty neat experience. Like the things that we we would be able to talk to people, we'd be able to get access to places. It, it was really amazing. That's awesome. Let's get away from the technical aspects and just, you know, the you, you being there and all, but you were there for a purpose and that was to tell the sailor story. So let's add some humanity to this. So let's talk through some of the people, the jobs, the the people you actually met and the relationships you you created. Yeah, it's really interesting because some of the sailors, you know, it runs a whole gamut. Some of the sailors are there and we're able to talk to them and, and they came out of high school. They didn't really know what they were going to do. So they signed up for the Navy and they kind of just said, sure, Navy, put me wherever. And some of those people are in for four years and they're just doing their time and they're doing their thing and, and then, and, and doing a, a good job of it, but it's not really their passion. They're there and they're going to experience it. And then they're looking forward to being out in a year and a half or, or whatever their timeline is. And, and so that's interesting. It's interesting to appreciate, you know, somebody who's going to do that job because it, I'm telling you, man, being deployed on a ship for, you know, a six, seven, nine month cruise it's not it's not all roses it's a lot of hard work but then there's other people who are navy through and through and committed to this job and and they're doing this this is their career and they they own it they embrace it and you know that that's neat to see one of the people that took us around on the deck quite a bit is the fuels boson who is the person in charge of all the fueling operations and did an amazing job of of being able to help us get to the places where we could take some incredible images and, and videos. And one of those places was up between the two bow catapults. We're standing in a place called the pig pen where you have to stand behind a safe line and they'll launch a plane off the catapult. Then you have to move over and they're going to launch the second plane. When you say safe line, are you talking about just a piece of paint on the ground or like an actual line, like a bollard or what are we talking? Yeah, this is a this is a line on the ground. So this is painted on the deck, and the, it's a dashed line that's painted on the deck, and that's the safe line to make sure that you don't get hit by a, a jet that's moving or launching something like that. The thrill of standing there and having them launch jets on either side of you at 20 feet away is something that. I'll just won't really have the words for the power of that to have a jet sitting at full military power while it's being held back, getting ready to launch the rumble, the it's incredible feeling. And as I was talking to this fuels boson saying, you know, thank you again so much for, for helping us do this and getting these places. And, and it's, it's, it was such a thrill. And she said, yeah, I've been at this for 17 and a half years and I still get that same thrill every time I stand there. So that was really neat to to pick up on and and hear from people like that. Well, and you're going to get to tell her story, which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. The guys in green, the people in the green shirts, everybody works hard. So I don't want to take away from everybody. Like everybody has a hard job. It's a hard. It's just a hard environment. But they work really, really hard. They're managing the arresting gear, all the, all the wires, the cables and the catapult gear. And so it's just, it's a lot of hard work and I have a ton of respect for the, the work that they do. We, one day we were doing flight ops that started in the morning and at almost midnight, no, it was, it was after midnight. It was about 12:15 AM. The captain calls down to handler and says, we're going to run flight ops for another 45 minutes or so. And there were people already falling asleep on their feet just from working the 14 hour flight op. You know, like you're, you're on for 14 hours, incredibly dynamic, chaotic, dangerous environment. That's awesome. Another one that's really tough is the firefighting crew. So these guys train and train and train and, and they're geared up for the very worst case scenario, but hopefully that doesn't happen, you know? So they're sitting on their fire truck. They have to be on the truck 
on the deck. It's running. They're waiting for their four-hour shift before they're relieved. But, you know, hopefully they don't have to actually go do their job. So one of the ways they stay fresh and one of the ways they stay current is by they'll have a scenario of the day in their workspace, in their work center, and they'll just be talking through that. Okay, here's what happened. You know, here's the scenario. And and they'll just table talk that as far as go down through what, what would happen, what would they do. So a lot of respect for them. You know, it's like you're doing your job, but you don't, you hopefully don't have to do your job. <laughs> One of those situations. And remind me, the yellow shirts again are the people who... Yeah, so the yellow shirts are primarily directing the planes. They're they're moving the planes around on the deck. They're telling them where to go, which is incredible. Hearing it from a pilot's perspective is really interesting. As a pilot, you have no frame of reference for whether you're moving or not, and you're completely dependent on that handler to tell you to speed up or slow down or where you're going to be and how to you know swing your jet around. There's a couple of spots where we've got pictures of the nose of the jet and the entire cockpit of the jet is out over the edge of the carrier because they're having to park it in such a way, you know, up close and tight to where that's how you have to maneuver. And as a pilot, you, you don't know, you can't tell where you're at. You're completely dependent on this handler to tell you where you need to go, where you need to be. So one of the really cool places we got to go was in the bubble, which is like a little glass canopy thing that comes up from the middle of the deck between the two catapults. It comes up about two feet, raises up, and when they're in flight ops, this is where the catapult officer and some other people that function there you know, have their controls. This is where they actually push the button to launch the jets. And so we got to be up in there during the day uh, for they just let us hang out and talk with them about how this operation goes and to be able to see that the catapult officer has a really interesting job he's setting the weight of the catapult based on or the the strength of the catapult based on the weight of each aircraft that's going to launch so there's a weight board operator that shows the pilot the weight and then he shows the catapult officer the weight they have to agree and then the catapult officer looks up in his his guide basically based on that plane and this weight and the wind over the deck and the crosswind and the, you know, all these different factors, what he's going to set the catapult strength to, if you will. And then there's a counterpart to that down in the catapult control room that's doing the same thing, but he's getting his information from a completely different source. And they have to agree that on the strength of the catapult, their catapult settings have to agree. And then, and only then can they launch the jet, when they go through their whole sequence, the catapult officer comes down to this kind of final ready sequence. It's one button before the launch button, and then it's in his hands to launch the jet. He has to check about 12 things. He has to check a light on the, you know, on the bow the ship is on, a light on his console is off. Do it the way you did it for me. Do it at his speed. Oh, man. I, I... <laughs> Can you even say it as fast as he does it? It's like lights, lights, no lights, 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 thumbs, 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 head, ready, fire. And he checks about 12 things <laughs> in a second and a half. But the, the and it's thing, not saying it. It's actually processing yeah, it. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not just that he says this sequence. It's that his brain has to go, is the thumb up on these three guys, um, these final checkers that are under the wings, or not? Is the pilot's head back against the headrest or not? And he has to decide, and he does that in about a second and a half. And then he turn, you know, pivots his chair to the catapult two and fires that one 45 seconds back to catapult one you know they're launching a jet every 45 seconds or so 45 to 90 seconds for a two-hour shift on that it's incredibly the, intense well the thing that kind of kept going through my head is as i listen to your stories and i know you've got a couple more here to tell us is the amount of chaos going on there is no normal day you know the, the number of people required to do a job and to do that job correctly, as motion things change, okay, when's what? When's what speed? Weight's what? Right. What's the weight of this? And you've got all these people doing these jobs. The amount of trust required for yeah. people to do their job or people die on a not day-by-day -day basis, but on a moment-by-moment -moment basis without any warfare. That's Just right. the doing the job 
it blows my mind. It makes me realize how casual we get when really some of us make don't realize how often that happens to us in, you know, making a decision to turn, not turn, driving yeah. down the road. That's yeah. that's a potential death. But this is at a much, much higher level. The pace at which you are making those decisions that could result in your death or somebody else's death, like by making the wrong call, is just, it's it's called the most dangerous job in the world for a reason. You can be sucked into an intake. You can be blown overboard, walk into a prop. They tell us of, and they take a lot of care when the prop planes are on the deck to protect the sailors, but somebody has to still go under that plane and chalk and chain it while the props are spinning. And they'll say, now, you know, stop and think before you come back out, which way are you coming back out because of where the prop is and pay attention to that. If you walk into the prop, you will just disappear. It's, it's not pretty. Um, without, without, I mean, not even prop, just the jets. Didn't you say you had to cross under jets, like so, under the nozzle? When you cross behind a jet, which you have to do if you're going to walk around on the deck, because keep in mind, you've got a deck full of jets. They're all turning, as they say. They're all on. They're all running. And they're all moving, or at least some of them are moving. And you need to go somewhere, so you're going to have to cross behind a jet. You don't want to cross behind it. It's going to blow you over. And so the, the way you do that is you go right up to the tail of the jet, right up to the nozzle, and duck under. Don't hit your head, your cranial on the tail hook <laughs> that's tucked up there. Don't hit the tail fins, you know, pop up on the other side and, and watch out because there may be another jet as you've ducked underneath that's moved around to where you're going to get in the jet wash. And we saw guys where their only option was two or three of them to link their arms and, and shoulders and, and, you know, crouch down on the deck because otherwise a single person there standing there would get blown away. They have safe lines for a reason. There's safe lines for each catapult that you have to stand behind. Thankfully, no incidents happened while we were on the ship, but they had stories like they launched a plane where a guy was not behind the safe line and it decapitated him because he was, he was, you know, that's where the wing goes. And they, they had to do a FOD walk down to look for his head. Didn't find it. The plane was flying back to the base on land and found his head impaled on the end of the pylon on the wing. I mean, it's Good just grief. like, it's gross, but it's, it's, it's the risk. And this is the it's environment that, that they're working in all the time. It's, it's crazy. We got to go, I think I was talking about the bubble earlier. We got to go in the bubble at night and that's just a whole different experience. The, the deck of a carrier at night, not every part of it is pitch black, but there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of things you can't see and a lot of, mostly what you're seeing is little lighted wands of different colors, indicating thumbs up or indicating, you know, moving a plane around, things like that. So we got to go in the bubble at night, which is fantastic and amazing. Then we got to go on the deck during night ops and nothing like standing beside the landing area and it's really dark on the landing area. It's not at all like an airport. The planes coming in are not using landing lights. You're barely seeing beacons on, you know, their wingtips. You're not really sure. And then all of a sudden, wham, a jet appears in front of you hooked on a cable stopping right there screaming at full throttle that's incredible and and then the same thing we got to be up between the catapults at night they're launching jets on either side of us off the catapults at night as we're stepping back and forth across that you know that pig pigging area to be clear and the feeling of having them launch that at night is incredible I think my favorite picture from all y'all's reels has got to be the one where Kenton is behind the guy with the lighted beacons. Yes. There's an F-18 turning. There's the lights of the of the I tower behind, behind him, him. Yes. and steam everywhere. And it's just, it's epic. I wish I would, there was a video version of that. But The steam off this catapults is really iconic. And interestingly enough, going away in the, in the Ford class of newer, newer carriers as they go to electromagnetic catapults but some really great shots of the steam coming up as they're bringing another another jet around and the the fact that we were able to get that shot is i'm still stunned <laughs> <laughs> 
because if you don't move, you're on the nose Sakona that jet, and That's you're right. somewhere over the Pacific. Let Let's get to your unexpected leadership principle, and then I've got one last question for you. In the military, I expected everything to just be strictly commanded. So here's what you need to do. Here's how you're going to do it. Do it, you know, do it this way, shape up, whatever. The commander that we were on with had a ton of experience. He used to be a handler. And again, his like responsibility was flight deck operations for the entire Pacific fleet. So he's seen a few things and he noticed them struggling in the way that when the the C2s land, these are prop planes and they have to fold their wings and then the wings latch back and and he noticed they were having struggles getting the wings to latch back and after one of the briefings he said hey guys you know you you and you is about four or five people you guys stay here for a second i want to talk about this and he goes hey i see this is an area that you guys are struggling with out there like it's causing some slowdowns it's causing some problems so let me give you some suggestions when you're doing it Instead of waiting for the plane to come off the landing area and then telling him to fold his wings, tell him to fold his wings before you turn him off of the landing area. That way the wind is helping fold those wings back. It's helping latch them in place. Then when you turn him, he's already latched and you know away you go. The point was, he said, look, this isn't like, if what you're doing is working, I'm not telling you you have to change, but this may help you out. And what I saw was a mentoring, was like a lifting up, was helping them be successful. He was setting them up for success. When he was in a position to just tell them, nope, you gotta keep training. Nope, you gotta keep training. You gotta you gotta switch what you're doing. You gotta train another day. You know, it was he had the power to say, we gotta be out here for another day before I'll certify you or another two days or you know, keep going. You're not certified yet. He had the power to say that. But he was helping them be successful. And instead of just dictating to them exactly what they were going to do, he was showing them, based on his experience, a better way in a, in a way that lifted them up and mentored them and helped them be successful. We saw that across several commands. That was just like one example. And it was just surprising to me, not having been in the military, I was expecting much more of a top-down dictation on how it was going to be. That's awesome. And I know that's that's something I learned from one of the greatest baseball coaches, the UCLA baseball coach from back in the 70s and 80s. Practice belongs to me, the game belongs to you. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that concept of I want to teach you how to do things, but at the end of the day, you've got to do it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that's that was a valuable lesson for me at a young age before I started working with young people and it does. It gives autonomy, it makes them believe in you. And right. when they can believe in you, try, that you have their best interests at heart, you know, there's there's some activity there instead of just simply dictation. The commands where we saw that happen, there was a ton of respect for the command structure. There was a ton of respect. And I don't just mean like planned in military respect, but like you could tell that these people were willing to do whatever their commander asked because they respected him for that. All right, we're going to pull the ripcord. We could keep going for three days on this, but I could at least tell me how you <laughs> <laughs> tell me how you got off the boat. Did they the sail plan, back into San Diego? The plan we we walked on the ship in San Diego, and the plan was to sail back to San Diego after this training cycle and and walk off the ship. But the commander said, "You know, you really should get a catapult shot off of this." ship if you are you interested and of course you know, you're like no no that's horrible i'm just gonna... kenton's kenton says i'm all in because i love roller coasters and i said i'm all in because i mean catapult shot you know that's something that's few get to experience and so we he said i'll see what i can do so long and short of it is again he worked it out we we jumped through all the the right hoops and the final day came and they put us, unfortunately it wasn't an F-18, so didn't get to backseat a jet, but they put us in a C-2 cargo plane and this was an amazing, epic experience. First of all, there's no windows, so there's no like point of reference. We, we've spent a week now watching this process happen. They give you the briefing before you go on. They tell you, go in and, and you know, it's a four point harness, tighten it up as tight, tightly as you can. Put on your, you have to put on a life jacket first, basically a, a big stiff horse collar life jacket. You put that on your cranial, your goggles, tighten up your straps as tight as you can. And then the loadmaster comes along and, and tightens them up more because in the C2, you're actually facing backwards. 
So imagine launching off on the C2, you're facing backwards, so you're gonna be thrown against your straps kind of out of your seat for that launch. So we're sitting inside this plane, we're trying to decipher based on what we've been seeing, learning, you know, experiencing for this past week, we're deciphering what stage we're at. Are they, okay, they're unfolding the wings. Okay, they're taxing over here. You know, they're getting us, they're putting on the holdback bar there. And then you can tell when they go to full military power, when they do the wind up, and you know you've got about 15, maybe 20 seconds before that launch happens. And so you're just, you're just holding your breath. And then that launch hits and you're going zero to 160 in about three seconds. It was not at all like a roller coaster. It was much, much more like you had just been hit from behind with a giant semi truck. <laughs> like, <laughs> a, a five second car crash. Uh, it was like, yeah, a car crash is kind of like, bam, you know, it's this big hit. This was like, you know, four seconds of, <laughs> of car crash. Yeah. That same amount of energy, but, but, but times four. And then we were flying That's pretty epic. <laughs> All right. So the, we're going to end the podcast with a phrase that Kenton Van Dyne used at the end. You're, you're off the plane. You're walking back to your truck and Kenton turns to you and says, I feel like we just robbed a bank and they let us get away with it. And they let us keep the money. <laughs> that came from like every time we went back into our, our, our birth, to the room we we're staying in, like every time we'd walk in, we'd shut the door and we just look at each other. Like, did we just get to do what we just got to, did we just get to see what we got, just got to see? I mean, the experiences that we had on there were epic. So Chester, we're looking forward to seeing the book. I know that's being worked on now. Yep. If someone wants to see more of this, yeah. You know, hear more of the story, see more of the story, look at the book when it comes out. How can they follow along with Life on the Flight Deck? Yeah, so lifeontheflightdeck.com is the central hub, lifeonthefightdeck.com. And then you can find us on Instagram as well, Life on the Flight Deck. So it's at Life on the Flight Deck on Instagram. And I'm still working for Cube. I'm still doing all this, right? But this is... This is my passion. This is what I'm what I'm doing. So yeah, follow along and I'm really looking forward to, to getting that out. If people want to know why are we talking about this on a Cube podcast? One, there's some interesting things that to me that related to business and the way that Chester and I operate and, and Charles too. But really, why do we work? You know, yeah. Cube's yeah. Cube's tagline for a while was play more. The whole meaning behind play more was we want to do our job so that it's so much easier to do your job that there's time for you to play more. There's things we want you to be able to go do with your kids or you know, pursue your hobbies or whatnot. You shouldn't waste time doing things that you don't have to do. And so this was an example of one of us. He got the opportunity. All of us said, go do it at Q because that's who we are at our core. And if you're like that, you're with like-minded people. And so we hope you enjoyed this and looking forward to what comes next, but thanks for following along and we'll talk at you later. Thank you everyone. Thanks for listening. 